The text reads like this. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Amen. When Hugh started to talk about prominent figures throughout evangelical history, because my introduction for tonight's sermon was talking about a figure from, his, from evangelical history that I didn't know much about until very recently. So Anthony Ashley Cooper, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, was one of the greatest evangelical advocates, politicians, and social reformers of the 19th century you see, Ashley was elected as a member of the Tory party uh, in Parliament in 1826, where he served in Parliament for nearly 60 years. During his time in Parliament, he sponsored legislation and pushed social reforms that were in line with the evangelical faith. The most famous social reform that he pushed was probably against child labor, uh, labor particularly chimney sweeps. He spent a long portion of his career trying to outlaw such a dangerous practice, introducing bills in the 1840s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, finally outlawing the practice in 1875. While Shaftesbury was a great evangelical voice to have in Parliament, his work and his push for social reform did not stop there. Shaftesbury was closely, uh, closely connected with seven different mission societies. One of the closest associations that he had was with the London City Mission, which sought to take the gospel to those to the urban poor of London. Shaftesbury would walk alongside the city missionaries, giving them support while also preaching the gospel himself. One such occasion found, the, found Shaftesbury with a missionary conducting a, a meeting with 394 of London's convicted felons, where he preached the gospel to them and tried to persuade them to lift themselves up out of the quagmire in which they had found themselves in. What I love th about this story and what I love about Shaftesbury is that he was an English aristocrat through and through, yet he was not too proud to enter into one of London's most notorious slums 
to help the people down on their luck find a new life in Christ. But this isn't where it ends either. Shaftesbury also tried to make worship services more accessible to the working class. He used the theaters in London to conduct worship services on Sunday evenings, trying to evangelize the working class by making these worship services more accessible. Three years after this had started, the services had a weekly average attendance of 20,000 people across five theaters. Many people from the lower class were able to attend and hear the gospel, most of them for the first time. You see, the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury stands to us as a great example of someone who did amazing things for the glory of God without being a minister in the church. Shaftesbury was never ordained as a minister, but he still set out to do Christian missions just in the context that God had placed him in. We can look at Shaftesbury's life and realize that any converted person in the church can make an extraordinary difference in the world around them through their commitment to loving and serving Christ. Shaftesbury's life shows us that ministry is not solely reserved for the minister, but should be done by every Christian. So tonight, as we come to study John 15, I want us to look at how we can be producing fruit for the glory of God. Our passage for this evening is the final I am statement in John's gospel, bringing our series in John to an end. Jesus calls himself the true vine in this passage, which I think is the perfect ending for this series for one big reason. Most of the I am statements that we have been looking at have shown us a lot about who Jesus is and the role that he fulfills as the son of God. While Jesus saying that he is the true vine still fits in this, this idea, he is also saying that he is also telling us a lot about the relationship that we have with Jesus. It shows us who Jesus is, but reveals to us that same relationship to him. So as we look at Jesus as the true vine, we are going to frame our study with the goal of abiding in Christ. Our headings for this evening are this. Number one, abiding in Christ bears fruit. Number two, abiding in Christ glorifies God. And number three, how we abide in Christ. Look with me again at verses one through five where we will see that abiding in Christ bears fruit. Starting in verse 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We jump into John's gospel in a similar place to when we were studying John chapter 14. Jesus and the disciples are still in the upper room preceding Jesus' betrayal by Judas. 
Satan has already entered into Judas and he has walked off to betray Jesus. So in the few moments of quiet that Jesus and his disciples have left, Jesus takes this time to have a heart-to-heart with his disciples and give them instructions on what to do in the coming days. This is where we come to Jesus saying that he is the true vine. Now right off the bat, we run into a loaded metaphor for the original Jewish audience. The use of the vine as a, met- as a metaphor is seen throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament, but usually in reference to Israel. We see this metaphor used throughout the prophets, particularly Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, but we also see it in poetry, like we saw in Psalm 80, which we read at the beginning of this service. All of the uses of this vine imagery in reference to Israel is used to represent the vine's failures to produce good fruit. Because of this, there is usually a reference to God's judgment in response to Israel's failures. Jesus then, in claiming to be the true vine, claims to be the vine in which Israel is just a mere shadow of. As the true vine, Jesus shows that abiding in him will both produce good fruit and give life itself, things that Israel had failed to do because of their sin. But yet, this is only the first half of verse 1. Jesus continues his statement by saying, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. We, see, we not only see the son's role in providing life to the branches of the vine, which are his people, but we also see the father's role in exercising his sovereign will for his glory and the good of his people. As the vine dresser, the father does two specific things. The first is that he takes away the branches that do not produce fruit. These are the unbelievers those who do not abide in Christ and therefore have no life in them. Judas Iscariot is the perfect example of this type of branch. He has seen Christ and has seen what he has done, yet has not produced any fruit and was therefore taken away. The second thing that the father does as the vine dresser is that he prunes the branches that do bear fruit in order that the branches may bear more fruit. The Father does this by enacting his will in the believer's life and directing their paths so they may produce more fruit. For the believer that is being pruned, this may look like a variety of different things. This could be the Father shutting one door of opportunity for another door that will be for his glory. While the believer, as the branch, may not understand why the Father would be taking away what we think is a good thing, or alternatively, he gives us what we immediately judge as a bad thing, the Father, being infinitely wise, is doing this in us to produce more and more fruit. Pruning can oftentimes and will be painful, but our sovereign God does this for his glory and for our benefit, even if we do not immediately recognize what that benefit is. So what then does Jesus say to his disciples in response to this great truth? Well, he tells his disciples to abide in him as the true vine. 
Jesus has made them clean and has given to them the salvation of their souls. This means that they, as the branches, are already connected to the true vine. Now that they have been given life in Christ, Jesus commands his disciples to embrace this new life and abide in him. I love the way that one commentator uh, translated the first part of verse 4. He translated it as this. He said, make your dwelling in me and I in you. Instead of the word abide, the tra- this translation emphasizes the continual nature of this command. But also the need for the, the conscious decision to dwell in Christ. You see, when the believer is saved and the Holy Spirit enters into that person and makes a dwelling in them, we then, as believers, are commanded to dwell in God as God dwells in us. This is not a conditional sentence saying that if you dwell in me, then I will dwell in you. But instead, it is make your dwelling in Christ as he has made his dwelling in you. As believers, We are called to fully embrace this relationship that we have with Christ. Only then will the believer be able to produce fruit. So when someone is serving the Lord, the fruits of their labor are honoring to God because God is the one helping them to bear fruit. One of the things that we should recognize in this section is the categorical distinction that Jesus is making between those who bear fruit and those who don't. There are only two options, uh, two options of living that our Lord tells us are available. We are either bearing fruit, or we are either not bearing fruit and are taken away by the Father, or we are bearing fruit because we are abiding in Christ. There is no third category to which a person abides in Christ and does not bear fruit. Therefore, if we are believers, then one of the things that we need to be actively doing is evaluating the fruit that we are producing while also think about how we could be producing even more fruit. Just down the road a bit, there are a few apple trees in front of that block of flats. There are probably about six or seven pretty young trees that are producing a huge amount of fruit. I like to believe that I know a fair bit about apple trees. My father planted some apple trees in uh, my childhood home's backyard, and I was able to watch them grow over about a decade. You know, if I were able to look back at those trees back in the spring, I probably would have told you that those trees are not going to bear any fruit at all. But because these trees were actively looked at, because they were cultivated, they were able to encourage growth and produce fruit. However, one of those trees is bending over from the weight of the apples and is making it look like a giant question mark more than a tree. It looks as if it hasn't received the attention and its health really is suffering from it. There is a lot of fruit coming from that tree, but the sustainability of this tree doesn't look good in the long term as the tree is almost too focused on the apple production rather than its own growth. These trees, along with John 15, help us to demonstrate one of the most important principles 
about bearing fruit and abiding in Christ. The believer cannot have one of these things without having the other. Jesus says to us plainly here in this passage, he says to us, and he says to his disciples, for apart from me, you can do nothing. That means if we as believers were trying to produce fruit by doing any form of ministry without remembering to abide in Christ, then whatever fruit that we produce will be for our detriment instead of for our growth. We would be like the bent over tree, killing ourselves because we have forgotten what we are actually supposed to do when we are bearing fruit. We're supposed to be abiding in Christ. And that is how God is glorified in our fruit if we are truly abiding in him. If then we are able to properly abide in the vine as Jesus calls us to, we can produce incredible fruit like the other healthy trees. Even the youngest of us in faith, although we may feel like we are unable, can produce so much fruit as those skinny trees do. Some of those trees don't look like they can produce much fruit at all, but because they were given the attention, because that they, they were given the care, they are able to grow the fruit and do great things. Therefore, if we as believers are focused on abiding in Christ, we know that our focus on producing fruit will be successful because Christ is the one responsible for that growth, not us. So the questions then that we need to be asking is what are we as individuals doing in our bearing fruit for the glory of God? Are we choosing to abide in Christ always, dwelling with him whenever we can? Or are we simply visiting Christ whenever we've, we need something from him or whenever it's convenient for our schedules? Then ask yourself, what kind of fruit am I producing? While we should recognize that there are seasons to growing fruit, Psalm 1 in particular says the, the righteous man bears fruit in its season. We need to ask ourselves where we are in that cycle. Am I serving God in mind, body, and spirit? Using my life to make the gospel known to the people around me through my actions and through my words? Or am I failing to let the inner change of my soul flow out to others around me? Christian, evaluate your fruit honestly, letting the Father prune you when necessary, knowing that it is done for the bearing of more fruit. Starting back from verse 5, verse five let's look at why we are called to abide in Christ. In verses 5 through 8, we will see number 2, that abiding in Christ glorifies God. Jesus continues, he says, I am, the brand, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. In verses 5 through 8, we see clearly spelled out the rewards for abiding in Christ and the consequences for not abiding in him. 
In this section, Jesus offers some insights into the relationships that he has with all people in this world, revealing to us what happens to each person depending on their status, whether they are abiding in him or fail to abide in him. He is the vine, and all of mankind is the branches. Our identity in relation to the vine determines our destined eternity. One of the greatest blessings that Christ offers to mankind is that of life. It should be no surprise that Jesus uses the metaphor of the vine to show the giving of life. You see, when mankind was created, we were meant to dwell with God bodily. Genesis 3, in particular, talks about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, most likely to be with Adam and Eve physically. But why would the all-powerful, all-knowing God want to stroll around in the garden in his creation? Because when he created mankind... He created them out of his love, desiring for the people to delight in his presence and share in that same love. The relationship between God and man was originally created to be a life-giving relationship. But when our minds became infected with sin, our perspective on the whole situation seemed to flip on its head. What we once knew was life-giving, we began to mistakenly think that it was restricting. It's as if we, as the branches, started to cut ourselves off from the vine, thinking that the vine wasn't actually helping us at all. But when a branch is cut off from the vine, their life effectively comes to an end. Sure, the leaves might remain green for a couple of days, but eventually... What becomes green will eventually become brown as death slowly starts to take away the life that it once had. But our God, being infinitely gracious, has sent Jesus to repair that relationship. He's shown, us, he's shown grace to his people by helping us to be grafted right back onto the vine and have life once again. By confessing our sins, And abiding in Christ, we have been given life once again through our union and our connection with Jesus. Allowing us to not only have this life once again by abiding in him, but also to produce fruit for the glory of God. But there are also those who do not abide in Christ. For those branches that are cut off and without life, their destiny is different. They are thrown away like the broken branch that they are and are left to wither. Their willful rejection of life in the sun leads to their destruction and to be eternally separated from God. They face the judgment for the sins that they gathered up for themselves. Our thoughts again immediately go to Judas Iscariot. The one who at this point in the story of John actively betrays Jesus, giving him up to be killed. Judas had firsthand experience seeing what Jesus did, yet he still chose not to abide in Christ and remain isolated from the vine, leading to the treacherous end for this ex-disciple. But Jesus does not end this section on a negative note. In verses 7 through 8, 
He describes in more detail what abiding in Jesus is like, giving us an example of abiding and an example of bearing fruit. For abiding in him, this means letting Jesus' words abide in us. This means his teaching and his wisdom take root in our hearts. If we are looking to abide in Christ, then we are seeking out his teaching and his wisdom to give us life. Jesus' second example then for bearing fruit is fruit given in answered prayer. We see Jesus tell his disciples to ask whatever they wish and it will be done. This is to show that the fruit that we produce is coming from this answered prayer. Through our reliance on Christ, our coming to him in prayer, and our abiding in him, God is glorified as we prove to be his disciples in all areas of our life. When we are confronted then with the choice between life and death, the choice that we should obviously make is that of life. Instead of thinking that we are good enough and are cutting ourselves off from the vine, we need to dive headfirst into our reliance on Christ and our coming to Christ and our relying on Him on a day-to-day basis and bringing our troubles and successes before Him in prayer. Our God is glorified. One of the biggest lies that we can tell ourselves is that we are self-sufficient. Mankind will never be self-sufficient when we were originally created to fully rely on our God. So do not merely visit Christ when you need him or when it's convenient for you, but abide in him fully. Choose to abide in Christ because that is what glorifies God. And finally, let's quickly look at verses 9 through 11 where we will see number three for tonight, how we abide in Christ. Picking up in verse nine, Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Our final section is Jesus giving another theological insight into the believer's relationship with him as well as a commandment for the believers to keep. Beginning with showing us the relation between Jesus and the Father, Jesus looks at his disciples and tells them that he has loved them just as the Father has loved him. This love that the Father has for the Son is a perfect love that isn't conditional on obedience, but is given completely selflessly. The same perfect love is the love that Jesus has for us as his people. So then what is the commandment that Jesus gives his disciples? It's abide in his love. By Jesus comparing his relationship to the Father with his love for the disciples, he points to himself as the example of what it means to abide in his love. What has been the primary way that Jesus abides in the love of the Father? 
Jesus obeyed the commandments of the Father. In every moment that he spent on earth, Jesus lived out the will of the Father, fully embracing his will and obeying the direction that the Father had placed on his earthly ministry. When Jesus is in prayer to the Father throughout the Gospels, we see him constantly acknowledging the will of the Father and seeking to obey the Father's commands. This means then for us that if we are going to truly abide in Christ's love, we need to always be looking to Jesus as our example. Jesus lived the perfect life, living in perfect submission to the Father's will, fully embracing that will and obeying his commandments. And when we are able to do that, when we are able to look to Christ as our example and obey what he has to say, we can, we can join into the same joy that Christ has given to us as his people. This boundless joy that Christ has from obeying the Father, from accepting and being in the love of the Father, is the same joy that we can participate in as believers, as those who abide in Christ's love. So if we are going to abide in Christ, and if we are going to obey his commandments, we then should be doing everything in our power to set ourselves up for success in this obedience. See, the call of living a life in obedience to the commandments of Christ is a difficult one to live. When the world around us especially is calling for us to indulge in sin, the benefits of abiding in Christ, of a life fully in Christ, are endless. But, the, but our sinful minds can sometimes tempt us to go back to living lives where we determine the standard of righteousness and where our sins are excusable. The best thing that we can do and should be doing in setting ourselves up for success is looking to Christ so that our obedience to Christ is easy and our fighting of temptation is simple. One of the things that we need to be doing continuously is making sure that Jesus' words are abiding in us. Again, as I said earlier, the act of abiding or dwelling is a continuous action. If we are only coming to the Bible once a week on a Sunday, then are we truly abiding in the words of Christ? Instead of leaving time in, instead of leaving time in Scripture for one day a week, we need to be getting into the Word daily. We need to prioritize spending time in Jesus' words and letting his words abide in our heart. We should be re- one of the things that we can be doing is reading with other people. I know that Rebecca and I just started a reading plan where we read together on the phone every night. And I know there are other people here in the church that do similar things with friends and family. Whatever you need to do to spend time abiding in scripture, do that. Set yourself up up for success if you want to abide in Christ and glorify God. Another way that we can set ourselves up for success involves thinking about our attitudes in obeying Christ's commandments. Are we abstaining from, from evil things like drunkenness, pornography, stealing, and lying simply because our Heavenly Father told us not to? Or are we abstaining from these things because we see the destructive potential that lies behind these actions? Are we joyful in our obedience 
Or are we dragging our feet behind us? If we want to succeed in our obedience to Christ's call, and if we want to truly glorify God, then we need to be thinking about why God might command us to do certain things. If we think about our sin as destructive, then our temptation to embrace it will become easier to overcome. Finally, when desiring to set ourselves up for success, we need to remember why we seek to obey in the first place. Whenever we have the goal or reason for obedience in our mind, it reminds us why we are doing this. I'm kind of doing a similar thing right now. You see, in just under a year, in just under a year, I'll be getting married. And that also means that in just under a year, I know a lot of pictures are going to be taken. <laughs> One of the things that I am doing in preparation for that is I am getting active because I want to lose a couple of pounds. So <laughs> I've started exercising more, particularly instead of taking the train from West Kirby where I live to here, I start walking. You know, sometimes uh, those two miles, uh, <laughs> sometimes I'm really tempted to just skip those two miles and jump on the train because that's a lot easier. But when I think about exactly why I'm doing it, it's much easier to do that thing because I know that the end goal is more important than my present feelings. So how then, how much more do we feel about this with abiding in Jesus' love and obeying his commandments. We do these things all so that we can glorify God. So any temptation to sin will ultimately prove not to be worth it. We seek to obey because we seek to abide. Even though we may mess up at times, there is grace from our God to forgive us of those sins. And when we do mess up, we know that we must seek to abide in the vine even more. So if you are going to remember anything from tonight's study, remember this. Abide in the true vine, which is Christ. Throw off your sinful selves and rely fully on Christ our Savior. For he gives life and helps us to bear fruit to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.